Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. This is the word of the Lord. We're wrapping up our Sunday morning teaching series on missions today, on God's people spreading the good news that Jesus has now opened the door to knowing God, which if you think about it, is the only reason that any of us are here. Without missions, there would be no renewal. There'd be no church to visit. There'd be no church to join. There'd be no community to be part of, one that would embrace and welcome you. So in that sense, each one of us, even if it's your first time here, each one of us has benefited from missions and from what missions produces. And yet, the larger world tends not to see missions as beneficial, but as detrimental, as intolerant in a pluralistic society. And so you'll hear things like, why do you have to say that Jesus is the only way? Why do you have to proselytize? Why can't you be happy with what you believe and let other people be happy with what they believe? You hear, th you hear things like that. And so I want to consider this morning the interplay between Christian missions and the larger world so that we can better understand three things. First, why our larger world opposes missions. Second, why that opposition can't succeed. And third, why that's actually a good thing for the larger world that its opposition can't succeed. So three things this morning, why any society has to oppose missions, why that opposition can't succeed, and ultimately, 
why that's a good thing for that society. Now, before I do that, I'm going to take a brief aside to talk a little bit about this passage, because again, like we've seen so much in lots of Scripture, it contains these supernatural elements that are a little jarring for us as modern readers. We don't talk about demons or demonic possession in the West. We think that's an ancient way of understanding or an ancient way of explaining psychological processes. Further, we believe that physical phenomena like earthquakes just have a purely naturalistic explanation. And so some of us will look at the more supernatural elements in this passage and think, man, I can't relate to this. Or this is really embarrassing. A lot of scholars think like that, and so when some of them come to supernatural events in Scripture, they try to argue that what you are presented with here is an embellished story, a a layered account. That there was once some kind of event that did take place, but as it was told and retold and retold some more, that other things got added to it. So that the historical positions drifted into the background or they got covered up by the additions. And so what you're offered now is a crafted story for the purpose of what? It, it, it teaches certain religious lessons to the early church, a very popular way of thinking. That way of thinking, however, misses a very important point. And th- that is that these accounts don't read like the fiction that you find in the ancient Greco-Roman world. Instead, the elements in these accounts read like reports that you find from the Greco-Roman world. And we miss that as moderns because we're used to reading modern novels, stories that contain details that are extraneous to the actual point of the story. They, they add color, they add interest, but they're not central to the main point. According to C.S. Lewis, that genre of fiction did not exist back in the ancient world. In writing about one of the Gospels, Lewis writes, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this gospel that he's talking about. Of this text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, it's a report, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. What is Lewis saying? He's saying either you have one of two cases when you read stuff like this. Either someone created the modern novel genre in the early first couple hundred years AD only to have it immediately just sort of pass away until much later. That's one option. Or this is an actual report of what someone saw and heard. New Testament scholar Richard Baucom concurs when he talks about irrelevant details as one of the hallmarks of an ancient eyewitness account. These are details that are remembered, but that have nothing to do with the rest of the account. They're not meaningful to the main point in that they don't move the story along, but they do give you confidence that what you're reading really happened, that it's a report, not a made-up story. And they would be things like in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, that Paul and Silas were going to a place of prayer. That's a piece of information that is never mentioned again in the account. It has nothing to do with anything that follows. It's an irrelevant detail. Or verse 25, that they were praying and singing at midnight. You think, well, what's the point of that? 
What spiritual lesson do you draw from it being midnight? For that matter, uh, what lesson do you draw from it being night at all or at any time? Those are details that do what? They fix the account in time and place, but they don't contribute to the actual point in the lesson that you learn there. In that sense, they're extraneous to the account, which means given the time period that we're talking about, their presence indicates that what you're actually reading is a report, that it's an account of what someone saw and heard and then later reported, including the supernatural elements. There are other things we could talk about as well, but for the sake of time, we'll move on, and we're going to treat it this morning as having important things to teach us. Why? Because it actually happened. Okay, background then for the three points. First point, why does any society, why does every society oppose missions? I think the answer to that's fairly easy. It's because the values and practices that you find in the kingdom of God do not have a perfect overlap with the values and practices of any other society that you find on earth. Paul and Silas are in the city of Philippi. And what do you know just from reading this passage? You know that the Philippians were deeply religious people. Slave girl, verse 16, had a spirit of divination. The Greek text there uses a word that connects that spirit to the god Apollo. She talks about the Most High God, by which people hearing her would probably think that she meant Zeus, polytheistic. And she talks about there being a way to salvation, which apparently was something that was familiar with the people around her. There was language that made sense to them. Same thing that the jailer asks about later in verse 30 when he asks, what must I do to be saved? They were deeply religious. But their religion inculcated and supported a certain set of values and practices and not others. It built those values and practices into the social structure and it provided justification for those values and practices. And you see what some of those are in this passage. First, you realize that their society did not value all people equally that some people were higher or lower on the social scale than others. That was a socially accepted value within their society. And so it was acceptable for some people not only to own another person, to enslave this woman, but then to exploit her for their own profit. Not all people were considered equal, and that was okay with the society. There's a different kind of inequality that you also see when the owners, verse 20, drag Paul and Silas before the authorities. The very first thing that they do in order to make their case against Paul and Silas is they say, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. When the magistrates want to know what's wrong with these men, sir, first of all, they're Jews. In contrast to us, verse 21, who are Romans. And you realize there's a racial inequality, there's racial arrogance, racial prejudice that is baked into the DNA of the Philippian culture. That creates a clash of values between the Philippians and the kingdom of God. Paul argues in Galatians chapter 3, 28, that in the kingdom of God, there are no value differences between people. That there is no difference in worth and value between Jew and Gentile between slave or free, male or female. Why? Because you are all one in Christ Jesus. So Paul and Silas walk into Philippian society with a completely different set of core values. Values that because they are held deeply have to be expressed 
in a very different lifestyle from the people around them. And that's not only obvious to Paul and Silas, it's obvious to the Philippians. And so the real problem, verse 21, according to the Philippians, is that they, Paul and Silas, advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. They say, we are Romans. We have certain values and practices in our nation, certain ways of life and of structuring life that run counter to what these guys are promoting. They advocate things that we in our culture have said are illegal, not lawful, not okay for us law-abiding citizens to buy into or to do. We've put our values and our practices into law, and these guys are coming along saying that we should value and do different things. Philippians recognize that what they value is different from what Paul and Silas value, and that what the kingdom of God dictates for people is a direct challenge to what kingdoms on earth dictate for their people, which then leads to another value difference. The Philippians do not feel like they need any additional proof of wrongdoing. These men, they say, are the wrong ethnicity. They hold the wrong values. And so we don't have to investigate whether or not they really are disturbing the city. The accusation is enough. We can just beat them anyway because that is legal for us as Romans. And so the Philippians do. And you realize here that once you get used to putting some people in a category differently from other people, a less-than-yourself category, less-than-human category, a category where you can treat them differently than how you treat yourself, then not only can you exploit them, be racist toward them, but you don't have to respect them. You can mistreat them. You can even be violent against them and feel totally justified while you're doing it. And that's true, not just for the Philippians, it's true of every society. Every society has that group of people that it counts as subhuman. Every society, including our own. You can see that easily in the U.S. with racism. Not only the chattel slavery of the past, but how racist attitudes and practices have continued on into the present. Racism is not simply an ancient problem. It's not a recent historical problem. It's a now problem because it's a human problem. And so you, so you find it throughout history and across civilizations. It's not unique to any one people or time. But there are other categories of people that our modern world also tends to see as subhuman. People with disabilities, special needs. The elderly those with chronic conditions, people who are expensive to care for, who don't seem to contribute very much back to society, people who disrupt the way that you want to live your own life, the unborn, who if born will radically alter their parents' lives and bank accounts so that those parents cannot do what they would otherwise have done. And so these are people that we moderns put in a different category from our own. It's a category that lets us think about and value their lives differently from our own. So we don't have to feel obligated to make sure that they have what we have, or so that we can even consider ending their lives prematurely, consider euthanizing them, aborting them, so we can maintain our own lifestyles 
and what we want out of life without having to be dragged down by caring for someone who's an inconvenience. Christianity comes along and insists that every person is made in the image of God. It insists that every person is created by God in his mind. He thinks them into being, forms them, gives them an eternal soul, and because of that, every person is valuable. Every person needs to be guarded, protected, and cared for. So if you follow this Christ, this one who claims that one soul is worth more than the entire world, in Mark chapter 8. What's he doing there? He's channeling Psalm 49, verse 8, the Old Testament psalm that says the ransom for life is costly. No payment is ever enough. No payment. If you follow this Christ, you will be at odds with whatever society you find yourself in that values anything more than they value a single human life. And the people around you will know that They'll know that you're at odds with them and they will not want to hear that. That's just one value out of many that we could talk about where God's kingdom is at odds with the kingdoms of this world. In order for those who are in power to stay in power, for those who have benefited from a particular society's values and practices to continue to benefit, then that society has to oppose the kind of wholesale change that the kingdom of God brings into this world. And brothers and sisters, some of us still struggle with that here at Renewal. We still struggle to realize that following Jesus will definitely put us at odds with our society, with its values, its practices, its laws. And that when society feels threatened, it will strike back because it has to. That's point one, why our world opposes missions. Point two, why the larger world cannot succeed in opposing missions. And the reason for that is because at its heart, missions is not some special activity that you do outside of normal life. It can be. You can go to a certain location other than where you live with the specific intention of communicating your faith through what you do and through what you say. But if you do that, all you're doing is simply doing a special case of what you do every day as you live out your faith as you live out the values and the practices of the kingdom of God while other people get a chance to see what that means. In that sense, you are always on mission because mission flows out of what you value. And in that sense, I think you can broaden it. Every human being is always on mission, Christian or not, in some way or other because every human being lives out of what they value always communicates those values to others in the hope that other people will see those values as superior, that they will want to adopt those values for themselves. For instance, isn't that the case when someone says, you should not proselytize. You're being intolerant. And you should not be intolerant. You should not say those things. You should keep what you believe to yourself. What is that? That's a value. A value that you should be tolerant the way that they define it. And what are they doing by saying that? They're trying to convince you that you should agree with them, that their value of tolerance is better. Now, what are they doing? They're evangelizing. They're promoting the goodness and glory of what they find excellent. We could point out they're also being hypocritical, that they too are intolerant of a certain group of people they, don't, they deem intolerant. We could point out that they are proselytizing 
arguing for the glory of tolerance, but you can let that go for the moment. They're on what? They're on mission, just as much as anyone else is. And where are they on mission? In daily life, regular life, as they bump up against normal things of life. That's what you see Paul and Silas doing in this chapter. They're not standing on a corner preaching to people who walk by. They're not doing some kind of street theater. They're just doing normal life. They start off by going to a place of prayer. They walk through the city. They come across someone who's being legally exploited and taken advantage of, and they deal with unjust suffering. They engage all the same kind of things that you do, probably the things that you engage multiple times a day. They engage all of those things, the ordinary, usual ways of life, but they respond in unusual ways. And that's what gets everyone's attention. Paul challenges the polytheism of the, the, the religious relativism that the demonic spirit tries to throw up by commanding it to come out in Jesus' name. And when it does, you realize then that not all religions are equal that there's an order of supernatural spirits with Jesus at the top. Now, notice, Paul and Silas could have kept quiet, not challenged the status quo, but they didn't stay quiet. They respond unusually to an otherwise ordinary situation. Or later, they refuse to insist on their rights. You learn at the end of the chapter, verse 37, that both of them actually are Roman citizens which means that what the Philippians did, sentencing them without a trial, was illegal. But Paul and Silas valued something more in the moment than the rights that they could have insisted on. They didn't want their faith tied to or be validated by the state. And so they chose an unusual situation to submit themselves to an unjust situation. Later that night, apparently they can't sleep. It's not surprising. They were beaten severely with many blows, verse 23, that produced wounds so bad that they bled, verse 33. Their feet are locked in stocks, verse 24. They can't even move to relieve themselves. They're in the maximum security cell. They apparently couldn't sleep. But instead of sighing or groaning, they prayed and sang. Instead of cursing human beings, they praised God. Instead of falling into depression, self-pity, God, why me? They're expressing their trust in God. And that love for God, then what? It flowed over to love for human beings. They refused to escape from the jail when they had the chance. They valued what? They valued civic order, even unjust civic order. Because anarchy, where everyone does whatever they can get away with, is not a value of the kingdom of God. And so they stayed and apparently convinced the other prisoners to stay. And instead of revenging themselves on someone who is part of the machine that had been unjust to them, the jailer, they do their level best to save his life. Paul and Silas experienced the pressures of living here in a fallen world. They were squeezed socially, politically, to the point where they're severely beaten. And they could have taken an easy way out multiple, multiple, multiple times and didn't. And you look at that unusual response to ordinary, usual situation, you ask, why? Is it because they're just good people? You realize, no, if you read earlier in the book of Acts, you realize Paul's an awful person. Earlier in his life, when he went to pray, 
It was so that he could demonstrate how religious he was, so that he could put God in his debt. When he earlier walked the streets of various cities, it was to hunt down people who followed Christ, people who disagreed with him. He used power unjustly to imprison them, to torture them. He did to others everything that was now being done to him. He had been very much okay with hating a certain group of human beings, treating them as subhuman. So why then does he respond so differently now? It's because as you keep reading through the book of Acts, you realize that he's a new person. He had an experience with Jesus after Christ had risen from the dead. And that experience transformed him on the inside so that now that transformation gets expressed everywhere he goes. Transformation, see you learn here, transformation doesn't start on the outside and work its way in. It doesn't start with you doing things that seem like they're religious activities that you're hoping that if you do enough of them, they'll eventually turn you into a better person. It's not how change happens. Transformation starts on the inside. It comes with knowing a person, a divine person. Not knowing facts and figures, things about Jesus, but actually knowing him as a person. That's what produces a changed life. A change that now everyone can see so that you now handle usual stuff in what people think of as an unusual way. And that's why point two, the world can't shut down missions. Because missions is not something you do, it's something you are. It flows out of the new life that you've been given. You live in ordinary circumstances in ways that don't make sense to the people who are watching. Which, if people were to think about it objectively, point three, really is good for this world. It's good for society in general. It's good for individuals in particular. You realize here that Paul and Silas did not have an explicit social agenda. But their faith, lived out in the real world, had profound economic and societal implications on the people around them. Just think again about what they left in their wake. They treat an exploited woman as a human being who needs to be rescued, not used. They bring joy and peace into the darkest part of a miserable prisoner. The prisoners sat there that night listening to them. They were not cursing them, not telling them to shut up. What they did there was welcomed by that new community of prisoners that they found themselves part of. They respect the governing authorities, urge others to do the same. They reinforce what Paul will say in Romans 13, that government is a positive thing, that it's instituted by God himself. And they think outside of themselves and prevent a man from self-harm, from damaging himself, from damaging his family and household by killing himself. Think about it for just a moment. You realize that you actually want more of these kind of people in your country, not less. More people who have given themselves to this mission, not less. Because after they're done, the world is actually a better place than it was before they got there. Now, clearly that's not always the case with God's people. You read through history, especially church history, and you realize that Christians have often failed horribly at living out what Christ calls us to. We don't always live on this mission. In fact, many times throughout history, 
God's people have lived in ways that are counter to this mission, not championing the rights of the poor and needy, but taking the lead in taking advantage of others while justifying doing so with religious arguments, taking scripture and twisting it to fit their own agenda. Often look a lot like we take our direction from the kingdoms of this earth rather than from the kingdom of God. That's all true. And it's to our shame, to yours and mine. And yet, as Rebecca McLaughlin has pointed out in her book, Confronting Christianity, that is not a call for less Christianity. It's a call for more. It's a call for taking more seriously what God says in Scripture, for living it out more seriously. It's a call that we would be shaped more by our Christian faith, not less. It's a call to be more faithful to Christ. And as Tom Holland points out in his very thick book, Dominion, that's also a call to the larger world. It's a call for the larger world to realize that the values by which we critique the church for her many failures, values like needing to treat people equally, needing to treat people justly, it's a call for the larger world to realize that those values come from where? They come from within Christianity. They don't come from the nations of the world. I think Holland's point is especially compelling when you realize that he didn't write the book as a Christian. And yet he realized as he traces history forward from the time of Christ that many of the advances in how society treats people are taken from the Christian faith, not taken from pagan or secular society. That's what God's people on mission does for society it makes a better world for all of us. It should make a better world for all of us. But it also impacts individuals because it causes individuals to want more for themselves. Think again about the jailer's response. There's just been an earthquake. The prison doors are open. Everyone's bonds are unfastened. And he thinks to himself, normal people would escape. And so he's about to kill himself because the punishment that he is facing for allowing prisoners to escape is so awful, potentially crucifixion, so awful, he thinks that killing himself will be less painful. And then suddenly this voice calls out, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Can you hear the jailer thinking? All here. Why? You just literally had a get-out-of-jail-free card handed to you, and you didn't use it. Who does stuff like that? After everything that you've been through, after my part in it, you're still here, and my life matters to you? <clears throat> you're not thinking how to take advantage of this for yourself. You're thinking about me, about what will benefit me. Jailer experiences all of this, rushes in, verse 29, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What's going on there? He's convicted, aware that whatever kind of salvation his gods offer, it does not produce people like this. That their God is not like his gods that their God doesn't produce people like he normally comes in contact with. He's convicted that here are people who have been saved in ways that he is not. And what he sees is attractive 
Here are new human beings who have responses to life that human beings should have. Responses that are big, that move outward toward others, not inward, selfishly, self-absorbed, collapsing on themselves. And he realizes that whatever he is, he's not that. But man, how could you not know the God that they know who transforms people to be that? He's just seen something attractive, compelling, to be more human than he knows himself to be. What do I have to do to be saved? And it's at that point that Paul then explains to him what makes the difference. The transformation that everyone can see. And Paul tells him, verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to everyone else. They put words to what he had seen, an explanation of how he could connect with God. See, being on mission means that you bring both together. You have to live out your faith, and you live it out in the ordinariness of life. And when someone notices, there are times when you have a chance to explain what it is that they're seeing. I've debated this next illustration for a number of days. It's something that happened to Sally and me, and the reason, my wife Sally and me, and the reason that I've debated sharing it is because it makes us look good when the truth is we're regularly not good. You can ask Sally later about how she needed to rebuke me Friday night, how I needed to be called out for criticizing her publicly again. And so I've been afraid that if I share this positive thing, you'll get the wrong impression and that you could too easily miss the point. But then I realized that God shares Paul and Silas's life here, not so that you look at them and think, man, they're amazing, but so that you see what an amazing God does with ordinary people. That's what the jailer saw. He looked past them and saw their God. And we're told, verse 34, that he rejoiced when he had come to know the God that he saw. That was the payoff that he wanted. He did not rejoice because he's now on the path to being a better person. But he rejoiced because against all odds, living there in Philippi, he had come to know the God who can do amazing things in ordinary people. You have to keep that order clear. You don't come to God to straighten out your life. But what often gets your attention <laughs> is that your life is crooked, that it needs to be straightened out. That's not working right. The reason it's not working right is that you're trying to make life work in God's world while not being connected to him. You're trying to make your life work while valuing something else more than you value him. And when you do that, when you are centered on something other than the one who made everything else, your life can't work in the world that he made. And so your life not working is what gets your attention. But you have to look deeper and realize not working is just the symptom of a deeper problem. If you solve the deeper problem, it will impact the symptoms as well. But if you come to God in order to have a life that works, to just get the symptoms cleared up, you're still not valuing him as much as you value something else. 
You're valuing what you think he can do for you. You're valuing yourself and what you think you need more than you're valuing him. If you just want a life that works, you don't really want him. The goal in coming to God is not to get a life that works. The goal is to know the person from whom you deviated. That's what the jailer wants. He sees two guys who live their lives far more attractively than anyone he's ever met, and he wants to know their God. Because any God who could do something like that has to be far more attractive himself. And that's why he's filled with joy. It actually happened. He's now come to believe in this God. And God has left you here, Renewal, in the Philadelphia suburbs on mission so that you can show them to others in the same kind of way. Now, you're probably not going to cast out a demon this week. Then get beaten up, sing and pray in prison, and then have an opportunity to share your faith. It's probably not going to happen to you. But something else will come up where you're going to have a chance to live on mission. And so I want you to be able to start thinking now about what that might, be look, what that might look like and how you might handle it. Here's what it looked like for Sally and I. We went out to dinner a week ago or so for our anniversary, and, and it was just a comedy of errors from beginning to end. We had to wait about half an hour for a table, not a big deal, until people without reservations who got there after us were seated before us. It's one of those moments where you think, oh, really? This is how we're going to start. So walk over to the hostess, and it kind of seemed like they lost us, but she covered it all up. We got seated next, so not so bad. Waiter came over, introduced himself, was really nice, asked us what we'd like to drink. We asked for water with lemon that did not come. He came back without the water. We placed our order, and then he came back again, still without the water, to apologize that they were all out of one of the appetizers that we ordered. You know how this works? You back and forth, there's just two of you, and it's 14 appetizers. Okay, finally, this one. We're all out of that one. So we debated a little bit more, ordered a different one. Then he came back, <clears throat> again without water, apologized even more to let us know that they were all out of one of the entrees. So we got to order a different one. Kitchen staff brings out one of the appetizers without plates. Our waiter buzzes by, goes, look, I, I'll bring you plates, which also didn't happen. Now, to be fair, you could see that he was moving the whole time. Looked like they did not have enough people to serve that night. We can see he's having a rough time. We don't want to make his life harder. So after about five minutes of staring at each other and the appetizer, we decided we're just going to start in without plates, which he noticed, was embarrassed for, came back with plates. Sally's entree came out with broccoli. Sally can't eat broccoli, messes her up. She had asked for a substitute, so I now have to call this guy over. He's really embarrassed. He has no control over what comes out of the kitchen. But he's the guy who has to face the customer who is not getting what they wanted. He's very embarrassed, apologizes profusely, holds himself in check, came back with what she asked for, apologized again. And we're not upset. You can see that here's a harried man who really does look like he's doing the best that he can. We try to help him calm down a little bit, tell him it's really okay. And something really cool happens. We start to have a conversation. He tells us how nice we are 
how we're not responding like he's used to people responding. Talk a little bit more. He's not originally from the suburbs, comes out of the city. We talk about what it was like for him to come out, about where he lives now, how long he's been waiting tables. And he tells us again, and you guys are really kind of different, different from other people, that the diners, and he's being very gentle, but he says diners don't really see the wait staff as people, but as a means to getting what they want. And if they don't get what they want that they're paying for, they can be pretty unpleasant. What is he saying? He's saying that in a restaurant there is a category of subhuman people that you're okay with mistreating in certain ways. A really good interaction, a humanizing one. So we're eating appetizers. Sally's having her dinner, but I'm not eating my dinner because it hasn't come out yet. I waited a little longer. I'm really hoping that it just comes out because I don't want to have to call this guy over one more time. It's not coming out. Finally, I get his attention, and I'm, you know, it, 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 did, did, do you know if my order got put in? And he looks like he wants to find a hole to crawl into. Visibly now holding back his frustration with the kitchen, not dumping that on the customer, goes off to check, comes back very apologetic, very embarrassed to let us know that the order somehow got misplaced, that they were working on it. Now he would bring it out as soon as it was ready, which he noted was about 45 minutes late. And each time he says something, he apologizes, and he's apologizing more and more. He's telling us how patient we are. And I tried to say something like, look, you know, we've been blessed. We just want to be able to bless others. You know, something that comes out of the Bible, but it's, it's, it's really very vanilla. And he just blows past that and goes back to talking about how good we are. I can't let that go because it's just not true. So I interrupted him. I said, listen, we're not good people. We're really not. I got his attention, stopped all the words. I stumbled through something. I said, we just have a really good God. We have a God who's been good to us who has blessed us, he treats us way better than we deserve. We just want to be able to give that away to the people that we come in contact with. And this young man does not know what to do with that. But you can see that it went right home. Face everything else, thinking about it deep. I have no idea what he's thinking. He's very much moved. This leads to more conversation. His girlfriend, who's waiting for him to get off shift, now joins in the conversation with him. When we leave, he grabs my hand in both of his, tells me his name, it's written on his, tells me his name, tells me what days he works, and he says, please come back and see me again. You might not cast out a demon this week, but you probably will go out to dinner. You'll do a bunch of other stuff while you live out your ordinary, normal life. Here's my plea to you. Do it intentionally. Do it on mission. Look for where you can live on mission. It will cost you. It cost Paul and Silas. But it won't cost you more than it cost Christ. Jesus was also arrested and beaten. Except when he was beaten, Isaiah 52, 14 tells us, it was so bad he didn't even look human anymore. People would hide their faces from him. He had his feet fixed on the cross and the rest of him as well. When he prayed from the cross to God, he used the words from Psalm 22, one of the prayer songs in the Old Testament. People around him were listening. 
But what they heard was not that God was near to him in his hour of need. What they heard is that God had abandoned him, forsaken him. Some of the people there were not simply listening, they were mocking. They said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. But that was the whole point of what he was doing. He didn't save himself so that he could save others. He did all of that when he didn't have to. He did all of that when he could have used his power at any point to stop it. And Jesus chose love instead. He chose to stay there, bearing the punishment for his people's sins, for yours and mine. For every single time that you and I have been less human than God made us to be. For every time when we've hurt someone by being less than human. Jesus chose love over power and died. He was placed in a tomb much darker than any prison cell. And yet here's where his story is different because Jesus didn't stay in that tomb. And because he left it, he then brought life to others, not death. Life to anyone who believes that he paid the price for their sins. If you choose to be on mission for this God, this one who chooses love over power, you will not misuse power. You won't see people in a separate category from yourself. You won't doubt him. You'll trust him. You'll believe that whatever he leads you into is not only for your best, but that's best for what he's doing for the whole world as he transforms his people one person at a time. Lord Jesus, you have outdone yourself. You came for us when no one else would. You did not leave us to die. You did not leave us hopeless. And Lord, you have given us example after example after example, people that you have passed in front of us who have been radically transformed by you. Lord, let us see them, let us love you all the more, and let us long, desire, to be so close to you that we become a little bit more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.